Today we're going to look at a couple of very famous incidents from the life of Christ. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, so if you have your Bibles, please turn there. And we're going to pick up reading in verse 23 in just a moment. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. And today we're going to look at the calming of the storm and the healing of a demoniac, that, uh, the, the one in whom there was a legion of demons. I'm sure you probably remember that, uh, that incident. And actually, uh, there were two demoniacs. You probably, probably just remember the one named Legion. But uh, there were actually two, and we read about those in Matthew's Gospel here in just a moment. Uh, but I've titled my message today, What Kind of Man Is This? What Kind of Man Is This? And I've, I've taken that, uh, that title from a bewildered question the disciples asked one another as they looked at each other with uh, wide-eyed wide amazement and kind of scratched their head after they saw Jesus do a mighty work. And I submit to you this is an extremely important question for us to answer, not just the disciples. Now, you might remember that at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked the disciples probably the most uh, pertinent question that a person could be asked. He said, Who do men say that I am? And they said, Well, some say the, the prophet and all these different ideas that were floating around at the time. Then he said, Who do you say that I am? And that's a question that we all have to, all have to answer. But a sister question to that is, is what kind of person was and is Jesus? What kind of person is he? Because uh, you can worship Jesus but not be the Jesus of the Bible. Did you realize that? You can worship a Jesus that's not grounded in Scripture. For instance, uh, that's what the cults do. They, m many of the cults will have a figure in their faith that's called Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Some will say, well, he was... Uh, he was a, a man. He was a very good man. He was an important man. He was a good teacher, but that's all that he was. He was a man. Well, that's not the real Jesus. Or they might say, well, he was a God, a little g God, but he wasn't the God, big g God. Okay? He, he was a God, but he wasn't one with Yahweh or, or Jehovah. Well, that's not the real Jesus. Or they might say, well, Jesus was the spirit brother of Lucifer. That's not the real Jesus. See, you can worship a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And when that happens, it always affects the gospel that's preached. Now, back in the New Testament, Paul talked about uh, another gospel, and he warned about following some other gospel than, than that which had been grounded in the Scriptures, that which had been received uh, from the apostles, and he warned that we shouldn't do that. And when people uh, follow this other gospel, no doubt they're earnest. They're very sincere in what they believe, because nobody's going to say, you know what, uh, this sounds like a good error to put my faith in. I'll just... As a good joke, I'll just put my faith in the wrong thing. They don't do that. They are sincere in their faith, but the problem is, even though they're sincere, they're misled and they stand condemned. So it's important that we answer the question, what kind of man is Jesus? But also, it's important for us as Christians. Because the more that we understand who Jesus was and who he is, the better that we can love and worship him. Because you can't love that which you do not know. And I want, you, I want us to ponder this this question with the disciples and see what we can learn from these two accounts. And I'll give you a spoiler alert. Does anybody ever read Facebook? I read Facebook too much, and I'll be scrolling down through there, and somebody always gives a spoiler about some show that I haven't watched yet. And I'm like, ugh, put a spoiler alert. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. The, the demons understand who Jesus is better than the disciples do. It's kind of interesting. Okay, so anyway, if you have Matthew 8, uh, please stand as we uh, begin reading verse 23, and we will finish out the chapter. It says, When he got into the boat, that's Jesus, his disciples followed him. 
And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. So they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds of the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tomb. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding in a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. He said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Thank you, maybe seated. So, the disciples asked, what kind of man is this? Now, I, I submit to you there are at least three things we can learn about Jesus from this. Uh, four things I'll, I will uh, mention. The first is that Jesus is the Lord of creation. Jesus is the Lord of creation. Now, we see this in a number of ways as we look through the Bible. First, we see that Jesus is the Lord of creation because he's the creator. Now, when we think about who created the, the universe, who created the world, we usually think of God the Father doing it because we think about in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and we think of the Father as being the one who created things. And he was involved in creation, but what you may not realize is that so is Jesus. In fact, John chapter 1 and uh, the first couple of verses in there say, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then if that's not clear enough, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 says, For by Him, speaking of Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So Jesus is Lord of creation, number one, because he's the creator, but also because he's the sustainer. Jesus sustains the universe. He's the one that holds the whole world together. You know, we, we sang a, a song when we were kids. He's got the whole world in his hands. There's some good theology in that. Jesus is the one who holds it all together. Colossians chapter 1, the very next verse, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the word of creation because he sustains it all. But the one that we see in our text today is that he is word of creation because he's the boss. He's the one who tells nature what to do. I like what one commentator said. He said, even though Jesus sometimes enjoyed less shelter than the animals and birds, he was not the subject of nature. It was subject to him. I thought that was, I, I love the way he put that. And it's obvious in our account today. Now, we didn't read the first part of chapter 8, so I'll just kind of fill you in on that. But what's happened in uh, chapter 8 is Jesus has been teaching. Uh, he's been, uh, the crowds were swarming him. And eventually, and we read this in the other Gospels, he ends up getting in a boat to use it like a floating pulpit. And he's, he's there on the boat and he's teaching the crowds. And he's ministering all day. 
and ministry can be exhausting. And it was exhausting to Christ because uh, after, after everybody had gone away, he said, hey, let's go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And as, he's, as they're going across the Sea of Galilee, uh, Jesus goes to sleep. Now, uh, we think of just there being one boat, but again, you read the other gospel writers, and you see that there were a whole bunch of boats that were out on that sea. Now, Jesus goes to sleep. Shows his humanity, right? But the Bible says he is asleep so much this storm blows up and it doesn't even wake him up. Now, that's, that's some sleeping right there. Now, when we think of a boat that Jesus was in, we might think of like a, a cruise liner. We might think of a freighter. We might think of maybe a ship that he could go down below deck where he wouldn't be getting wet. But back in the 1980s, I think it was 1986, if I remember right, there was a drought in the Middle East. And because of that drought, well, we know what the drought's like, right? All the, all the lakes go down. And stuff that was covered up with water for years is all of a sudden visible. And that happened in, in the 1980s. And lo and behold, there, was, there were some people walking along, and they found a boat lodged in the mud. And they got to looking at this boat, and they excavated it. They, they did their, their research, they dated it and everything. It dates back to the first century, about the time of Christ. And, and so people have nicknamed it the Jesus Boat, because it was around about the time that Jesus walked the earth. And who knows, maybe he wrote in it. We, we don't know. But they pulled this thing out of the mud, and I have a couple pictures of what they pulled out and uh, I'll show them. That is what they pulled out of the mud right there. Go on to the next slide, please. Not a very big boat. And so what they did is they took this, uh, what, what the remains were, and using that knowledge plus what they knew about other uh, boats at the time, they went ahead and reconstructed it, which is the next picture. So this is probably a boat very similar to what Jesus was in. You can see there's no downstairs, right? And so there are going to be 13 people in this boat. It's going to be crowded, and he's laying down sleeping. So here all these, all these waves are crashing in, and Jesus is sleeping through it all. Now, let me tell you, I have been tired before. I have fallen asleep standing up when I was a kid. I don't remember it. My parents tell me I did. I used to fall asleep in the bathtub on a regular basis early in the morning, but I've never had cold water coming up on me and being able to sleep through that. Jesus was tired. So, so here's this huge storm that's going on, and this would have been a, a pretty common occurrence because the Sea of Galilee is some 600 feet below sea level, and of course it gets very hot, heat rises, so the hot air goes up and it's surrounded by all kinds of valleys and things, and you know how the valleys are around here? The wind gets to blowing through them and it's, it just kind of funnels it, right? And that, that would happen over there. And this cold air would come in from the west. The heat was rising, and that cold air would fill the vacuum. Hot air and cold air make a big storm. And they would blow up real suddenly. And so this happened, and these, these disciples, most of them were fishermen. So they'd been out on the water all their lives, and they were scared they were going to die. I mean, this is the real deal. In fact, it, it was so bad, if you look at, at the wording that's used, and of course we don't read Greek, uh, but the wording that's used is translated storm, or Bible may say tempest, is the Greek word that's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as earthquake. The wind was so strong, the storm was so violent, it seemed the whole earth 
was quaking in his fury. And so these, these fishermen, they were alarmed for their lives. They thought they were going to die. And meanwhile, can you imagine the contrast? Here's Jesus taking a nap. So they wake him up. They're like, Jesus, don't you care? We're going to die. And Jesus wakes up. He rebukes them. Not because they woke him up and he was grumpy, but because they didn't have faith. And then he rebukes the wind and the waves. And here's the incredible part. Especially as you read some of the other Gospels and compare all these accounts, it says that immediately there was a great calm. Immediately there was a great calm. Now, if you think that's not a big deal, you go out whenever the wind's blowing sometimes, and you say, peace, be still, and see what happens. It's not going to work, right? Jesus had control of nature, but, but here is, is something incredible. Look at, again at what the, uh, the disciples say. They say, who is this that the wind and what? The sea obey him. And in fact, if you look at verse 26, it says, Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Now we have a little pool. It, it's nothing, nothing huge, fancy, not an in-ground pool, nothing like that. Just one of those Walmart deals. And one of the things that Jesse likes me to do is to make... Now, brother, I can make some waves in a pool that's not but 14 foot wide. It holds about 3,000 gallons of water. It's a lot of water. But, you know, I just have to kind of jump up and down a little bit out in the middle, and the waves get to going, and things start creaking, and I start getting worried, and the pool starts making noises too. And, I mean, the waves keep going, and I can stop, and the waves keep going. What's incredible here, and, and if you look again at verse uh, 26, I think it was, I said, he rebuked the winds and the, and the sea, and it became calm. So even if he rebuked the wind and it stopped, what should still be going on? Wait, but all got calm. Think about how incredible that is. No wonder these disciples were amazed. I mean, that's power. That's authority. And they said, what kind of man is this? He's the Lord of creation. Even the wind and the sea obey him. And, of course, that type of power is only possessed by God. If you're right, uh, if you're on your Bibles or if you take notes on your bulletin or something, uh, you might jot down this reference, Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. The psalmist says, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And I thought that was just a an awesome verse. So what kind of man is this? He's the Lord of creation. He, he made it. He sustains it. He controls it. Number two, he is the Son of God. Now, the, 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 the demons answer the disciples' question. And this really follows along on the heels of what I've just been talking about. But it's laid out just in case we're slow and we miss it, like the disciples. Now, people sometimes have the idea that there's this epic battle going on between two equal powers, God's side and the devil's side. And they're battling it out. Sometimes the God, God gets up and, and, and he's on top. Sometimes the devil is taking the day. And we'll have to wait till the end of the day to see who comes out on top. Well, I'll give you another spoiler. Uh, we win. Okay? And, and God wins. Why? Because he, he's got all the power. Now, Matthew doesn't record this, but Mark and Luke record uh, details that he doesn't. One of the details that they record that Matthew omits is that when these demons, these demon-possessed men, they run out to Jesus. And remember, these guys are violent. 
They're attacking people that go by. They rush out to meet Jesus. And the Bible says, when they got to him, they fell at his feet. They prostrated themselves before Christ. Now, why did they do that? Because they knew who Jesus was. In fact, they call him, uh, look again at, at what they say in verse 29. They call him the Son of God. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first confession of Jesus as the Son of God in the book of Matthew. It comes from demons. Now, what does it mean to be the Son of God? Well, that's a big topic. And I'm not going to preach a sermon just on that. But I'll just summarize it this way. Jesus is God in the flesh. He willingly laid aside some of the prerogatives that come with being God. But when he was on earth, he didn't stop being God. He was fully man. We see it in, in, in him falling asleep. But he was fully God. He calmed the storm. He's both. He is not a God. He is the God. He's the Savior of all who will call on his name. Jesus is the victor over the grave. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. That's who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. Now, we could get into all the, the hypostatic union and all that, but, but I don't want to use the big words. So let's move on. So we see that what kind of man is he? He's the Lord of creation. Number two, he's the Son of God. Number three, he was courageous yet compassionate. He was courageous yet compassionate. One of the things that impresses me about Christ, I read the Gospels, is his bravery. I mean, if, if, and when you read it, I mean, we, we, many of us have been in church for so long, just read it, and we don't even think about uh, what is being said. But when you kind of put yourself in his place, it's incredible the amount of bravery that he had. He never shied away from doing anything that needed to be done. Now, you've never experienced this, but maybe you, you have a friend that's been in church where they don't talk to people, they talk about people. You know what I'm saying? They'll have a prayer request that they'll share over coffee or over the phone. It's not a prayer request so much as it is gossip. Jesus didn't do that. He talked to people. If he needed to, he would confront somebody to their face in public. Now, in today's culture, there are a lot of keyboard warriors. You get on YouTube. I love looking at martial arts videos. Some of them are just hilarious. But some people, I mean, these are guys that are like super high up in, the, in their own discipline. And here's somebody, oh, that technique, you're doing it wrong. You know, uh, uh, keyboard warriors. They're very adept at kung fu. You know, I mean, they, they, they just, and they're, I mean, that's just the way people are. I mean, we just talk about people. We don't talk to people sometimes. And, but Jesus didn't do that. And put yourself in Jesus' place. Here you are, surrounded by people who are influential, have all the power, they're out to get you, and looked them in the eye and said, you are a bunch of snakes. That's div. That is not. He looked at him and said, "You're a bunch of bro- you're a brood of vipers. You're you're whitewashed tombs full of uh, of dead men's bones. You look good on the outside, the inside's filthy. And that's that's getting up in your business, right? And that's what Jesus was doing. He would do things that made people talk and whisper. It was scandalous who he associated with." He would eat with tax collectors, with prostitutes, people that the, the church folk, you would say, they wouldn't have anything to do with. And that's who he went, that's who he hung out with. He would do and say things that would make him unpopular. 
He was even in physical danger at times. We see this in verse 29. Here are these men who are violent. People would give them a wide berth because they would attack them. And what did Jesus do? He walked right up to them. That's guts. He faced it head on. There is some courage in that. Of course, we see it's courage in facing the cross. And we tend to think of somebody like that that's courageous. Maybe we think of a soldier who's out on the battlefield. We think of them as being salty. That's the word I grew up hearing, salty. You know, uh, they're tough. Have a grizzled, uh, a grizzled beard and, and gritted teeth. They're aggressive. You know, they're, ugh, right? That's what we think of with a courageous person. But Jesus wasn't like that. He had a tender, a tender side. He had a big heart. He changed people's lives for the better. Just as he did here. Now, why did he do that? We did it because he loved people. Now, I had a new thought this week. And I, when I, I read it, somebody said something, made me start thinking some things. And I was like, you know, why did I never think that? that that's a good point. And here's the thought. Do you realize that Jesus didn't have to do miracles to help people out? you realize that? He had all this power. And the powers were to attest that he was the Son of God. He could have used that power to, to prove he was the Son of God by taking a mountain up and casting it into the sea. He could have used that power to, to split huge rocks open. He could have used that power to, to part the seas. He could have used the power, as, as the commentator said, to make water run up a very steep hill. He could have used that power to do any number of things, but instead, he used the power that he had for the good and benefit of mankind. And I thought, wow, that's good. Jesus was courageous, but he was compassionate. Why? Because he loved us. So what kind of man was he? He was Lord of creation. He was the Son of God. He was courageous yet compassionate. And the last thing that we see in the last part of our text Verse 34, he was rejected. He was rejected. He was all these things. He just worked a benevolent miracle, and yet he's rejected. And what happened then happens today, too. People rejected Christ, even though they came. he came to do them good. These people saw the good that he had done. Jesus does this miracle. The whole town comes out to see him. And we would probably think they came out with tents and a lot of folding chairs. They're going to have a tent revival. Right? They're, they're, they didn't run out to greet him and say, Come, come, enter our city. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what we would expect. But the Bible says they ran out and they said, Well, look at verse 34. They implored him to leave their region. Other uh, gospel writers record that they were frightened. Now, we don't know exactly what it was they were frightened of. It could be they were frightened of losing some more livestock. I mean, 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs. It could be that uh, they, were, they were terrified in their hearts because of who he was. They felt conviction. You remember there's a, a time when Jesus and Peter are in a boat. There's a miraculous catch of fish. And when Peter sees that, he bows down. He says, Lord, leave because I'm a sinful man. He recognized that Jesus was was more than just a man. It could be that. Whatever the reason is, it seemed that they loved their pigs more than people. They didn't care that these men were back in the right mind. 
uh, you know, the Bible says in, in other uh, Gospels that uh, they were running around without any clothes on. They were cutting themselves. And here they were. They were clothed in the right minds. They were at peace. They didn't care about that. They said, Jesus, leave our area. Ultimately, they were more concerned. They loved their swine more than the salvation of their souls. And that's a sad thing. They rejected him, and so what did he do? He left. And what a terrifying thought that is. And maybe God's been dealing with you for some time, and you're much like these people. You've, you, you've been in a church service, wherever it is, and you felt him moving on your heart. You felt him drawing you to salvation, and yet you reject him. Not because he's, he's done something bad. He's done something good. He's died for you, but yet you turn your back on him. If you reject him long enough, he'll give you over. You turn your back on him, eventually he'll turn his back on you. You say, oh, well, you know what, preacher? You can just keep all that salvation stuff. I'll just get saved whenever I want. I'll, I'll just wait till my dying breath, and then I'll come to God. So you just... You know what? Jesus said something different. He said that no one comes to the Father unless God draws him. You can't come at any old time, any old way. You have to come when he calls you or you don't come. Say, well, that's narrow. Well, that's biblical. That's what Jesus said. If it was up to me, I'd let everybody in. But Jesus says, you must be drawn. And if you're being drawn by God, you need to accept him today. Put your faith in him today because... It might not be happening tomorrow. Or maybe you're a Christian and God's been convicting you of your sin, but you've still been rejecting me. You've been hardening your heart. It says, ah, but what about this? What about this? And you keep saying, yeah, I'll take care of it one day. Leave me alone. The Bible talks about if, if, we, if we don't heed His call, if we don't respond, we get callous. Our heart gets callous. And then, uh, you know, some of you have big old calluses on your hands. And you, I have calluses on my toes. And boy, you stick a needle right in those things, and it, you don't feel anything. That's the purpose of a callus. It has been exposed to an irritation long enough that your body starts to build enough resistance to it. Same thing happens to your heart. The Holy Spirit pokes at it and says, Hey, hey, and after a while gets callous in that area. You don't feel his presence anymore. So if you still sense him dealing with you, respond to him. Now as I said, this teaches us a lot about Jesus first. It teaches us he's the master of creation. He made it. He sustains it. He controls it. So what's too hard for him? He made it all. He made everything out of nothing by talking. So what's going to be too hard for, for God? Nothing. But you know what? That means very little if we don't have his compassion too. Just because he can do good doesn't mean that he wants to do good. But he's courageous and yet compassionate. Why? Because he loves us. Not because we deserve it. He died when we were still sinners. Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this. He laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus did that. He loves us. He loves you. So are you in need of something today? 
You say, yeah, but it's it's something big. Only God can do that. Well, that'd be a good person to talk to about, you know. He'd be a pretty good one to talk to. Ask him today. And I'm not I'm not going to promise a blank check that God signed and you just put in your request. But I will tell you this: Jesus said, "Ask and seek and knock. Ask, seek, knock. Keep doing it." If you have something on your heart, take it to him today. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come? I want to give you a chance to do that. Maybe you have some some need on your heart, some burden, somebody that you love, something going on in your life. Take it to God in prayer. Job situation. Family situation. Are you rejecting me today, Christian? non-Christian even though he's done you good he's, he's died on the cross for you he's, rose, he's risen again he's brought you to this church to the gospel message he's done you good now you turn your back on him saying leave me alone Heavenly Father, Lord, sometimes we don't even know what to say. Maybe we just have a burden on our heart that's too deep for words. Maybe we just can't really find the words that match what we want to express. Thank you in those times that we don't know what to pray that the Spirit intercedes for us. And He takes those groanings that are too deep for words and, and brings those to you. And you know exactly what, what we need. God, I pray that you'd help each of us today to not reject you, to not turn our back on you. If we feel your conviction, your drawing, your leading that you'd make us sensitive to those things and obedient. Thank you that you have all power and that nothing's too hard for you. That you not only have the power, but you also have the love and the desire to, to do good to us. And God, for maybe the person who's never been saved today, they've rejected you up until this point break their hearts and break their will so that they uh, will submit to you and accept Christ as their Savior. Lord, please help us not be a stiff neck and rebellious people, but one that uh, lovingly follows you. In Jesus' name, Amen. What's on? Page 307.